0: JUICE launches to Jupiter, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Alahmed ahmed of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. If you like the suspense of rocket launches, last week was a blast. We're celebrating the successful launch of the European Space Agency's JUICE mission with project scientist Olivier Vitas. He'll tell us about the launch and the next steps for the mission as it makes its way to Jupiter and its icy moons. And as always, we'll turn to our resident astronomer, Bruce Betts, for what's up and a guide to this week's night sky. We've got to start our space news this week with the Starship. No way of sugarcoating this one. SpaceX's Starship exploded during its first orbital test launch. What can we say? Space is hard. The company's super-heavy booster and Starship spacecraft blasted off on April 20th from the Starbase Launch Facility in Boca Chica, Texas. It self-destructed several minutes after taking off in what SpaceX described as a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. The Starship is the most powerful rocket ever tested. It might take a couple of attempts to get it right, and even though the rocket exploded, the test still represents a step forward in the company's ambition to send humans to the Moon and Mars aboard Starship. And Here's a fun one. China has selected an asteroid for a deflection test. At the recent Biennial Planetary Defense Conference, a representative of the mission announced that the Near-Earth Object 2019 VL-5 will be the target of a dual spacecraft asteroid deflection and observation test, which is planned to launch in 2025. Much like NASA's DART mission that purposefully crashed into an asteroid last year, The new Chinese spacecraft will smash into a roughly 30-meter or 100-foot asteroid to attempt to alter its velocity. Another spacecraft will observe the impact and evaluate its effect on the asteroid. The more planetary defense missions we have, the better. We'd also like to send a huge congratulations to Planetary Society board member Brittany Schmidt. As a planetary scientist, Brittany does research in Antarctica, where conditions are analogous to frozen deserts on worlds like Mars. Time Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people of 2023 because of her research on an enormous glacier that's melting due to climate change. Congratulations, Brittany, and thanks for fighting the good fight for planet Earth. You can learn more about these and other stories in the April 21st edition of The Downlink, our weekly newsletter. You can read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. The European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer mission, or JUICE, launched from French Guiana on April 14th. This begins the mission's eight-year journey to Jupiter, where it will study the moons Europa, Callisto, and Ganymede. En route to the Jovian system, the spacecraft will perform the first-ever Earth-Moon dual-gravity assist flybys in August 2024, followed by a Venus flyby and then two more Earth flybys before reaching Jupiter in 2031. Jupiter's three largest icy moons, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, may host liquid water oceans beneath their icy crusts. This has prompted decades of speculation about these moons, how they formed and evolved over time, how they interact with Jupiter, and about the potential for life on these worlds. ESA's JUICE mission aims to investigate their habitability and expand our understanding of potentially life-harboring locations in the universe. Dr. Olivier Vitas is a planetary scientist and a project scientist for the JUICE mission. He joined the European Space Agency in 2003 and has worked on a number of missions, including the Huygens probe to Titan, Venus Express, Chandrayaan-1, Mars Express, and the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter. That's an impressive resume. In 2015, he joined the JUICE mission team and turned his sights to Jupiter. Hi Olivier. Hi, hello
1: Sarah. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing really well and it's been a really exciting week. I want to congratulate you and everyone on your team for the successful launch of the JUICE mission.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. It was a big week last week and that's the start of the new phase and the start of the journey to Jupiter.
0: I know that you guys had about, you know, like a one second launch window in order to achieve the correct orbit. What's the status of the mission? Is everything on track right now?
1: As you have seen, so we launched with one day delay. There was some uh, bad weather and lightning activity at the time of the launch on the the 13th of of April. So we we postponed to the 14th. It launched on time. I mean, we had one second to launch, so we did it. And then the the launch sequence went absolutely perfectly. All the parameters were were nominal. I mean, everything was on schedule. So the separation, the injection to space, I mean, it, it could have been better than that. It's good to hear the James Webb telescope you know, the injection was perfect there was a lot of uh, of discussion about that so for juice it's uh, it's the same so we don't need any correction maneuver in the next week so that's good then after the separation there was the first the, the acquisition of the first signal from juice here there was a little bit of delay so people got a, got a bit nervous but then it went well and the deployment of the solar panels happened a little bit earlier than expected so all in all it went uh, very very well
0: that's perfect because I know just like the James Webb Space Telescope, making sure that you do the perfect launch and that you don't have to use that fuel means that you can do a whole lot more when you get to your target, which is perfect because you're going to need that fuel to get this mission into orbit around Ganymede at some point.
1: Now we need uh, we need uh, a lot of fuel, in fact, more than half of the of the spacecraft mass is fuel because we have a lot of maneuvers. We have a few maneuvers during the cruise phase, then we have a big maneuver when we are at Jupiter. Another major upsize maneuver when we arrive at Ganymede to, to enter an orbit around Ganymede and in between we have 34 flybys of the moons of Jupiter where every time we need we do a flyby we need a little bit of fuel to uh, to correct if if needed so we need a lot of uh, of propellant so it's good that uh, the the launch was perfect then we can keep a little bit of margins for the future uh, milestones
0: and for people who are just now learning about this Juice mission, what is this mission going to do, and why is it so
1: important? Everything is in the title. Juice means Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, so that means we'll explore Jupiter and the icy moons, which are Europa, Callisto, and Ganymede. And one of the big questions for our mission is to to understand whether there are habitable places within the icy moons of Jupiter around a planet like Jupiter. The main um, question is to explore the, then the liquid water, because when we talk about habitability, the first thing to check is the presence of liquid water. And there is liquid water inside the AC Moon. It's, ki- it's kind of strange to think about it. But underneath the surface of Europa, uh, Ganymede, and maybe Callisto, there is more liquid water than on Earth. And Juice will explore that. And because we want to understand habitable places around Jupiter, we will explore Jupiter as well. So the atmosphere, the magnetosphere, and also the full system. So the other moons, Io, very interesting moon, the dust, and how everything is connected to each other. For example, how the moons are connected to Jupiter via the gravitational force. As a result, there is tides on the surfaces of the moon. So we'll explore that. And they're also linked to Jupiter via the magnetic field line. So there is a lot of uh, magnetic things to discuss, to explore. So it's very, uh, a very rich mission and very broad, and yeah, we are, we are very excited by it.
0: And this is the first dedicated Jupiter mission by the European Space Agency, right? What kind of sparked the creation of this mission?
1: Yeah, so the, uh, that's the first time we go to Jupiter, so that, that's a very challenging mission. It's a, one of our biggest uh, missions uh, in ESA, at least in, in the solar system exploration as a follow-up of uh, the Rosetta mission, for example, this kind of, of big mission. So a lot of challenges. First, we have to to have a mission which lasts uh, 10 to 15 years. So there is a lifetime. Uh, We go to Jupiter, which is a very hard uh, radiation environment. Very difficult to resist for the electronics, the spacecraft, the instrument. We go there where it's cold around Jupiter. While doing the cruise to Jupiter, we go via Venus. Uh, Venus, it's a warm environment. So we have to design a spacecraft which can work in the cold environment, in the warm environment. Plus we'll do a lot of very sensitive measurement of electric and magnetic field. That's one of the measurement to uh, very useful to uh, to detect the liquid water underneath the surfaces. And then we need to have a very clean spacecraft from the electromagnetic point of view. We don't want to measure what is coming out of the spacecraft. So the design was uh, extremely challenging for this. And because we are far from the sun, little power, little little solar illumination, That means we had to embark huge solar panels. So if you see how the spacecraft look like, you see the big solar panel with a cross-shaped 85 square meter of solar panels, so huge. So we need to find the right solar panels which can work in the cold environment uh, with low illumination conditions in the radiation environment. So all in all, it's, it's a very challenging mission.
0: Yeah, with NASA's Juno mission, they put it on an orbit that took it very far away from Jupiter and then back in. And the readings of the radiation coming off this thing are unreal. So how is the spacecraft grappling with that level of radiation?
1: That's one of the big issues of any mission to Jupiter. So that means uh, you have to check what you can do. That depends on your science objective. For example, the Juno science objective are to, uh, to study Jupiter in detail, the, the interior, the atmosphere, the gravity field, the magnetic field. So they have a polar orbit, and they go very, very close to Jupiter, and then they go very, very far not to be in the radiation belt all the time. So they design the trajectory depending on their science goal. For Jews, we are mainly interested in the icy moon, so we need to orbit in the equatorial plane of Jupiter, so different orbit than, than Juno because our, Juno is a polar orbit. Juice is an equatorial orbit because we want to fly by the moon. So we need to stay in this equatorial plane where there is a lot of radiation environment. So we need to stay at reasonable distance from Jupiter. So that's why we don't go to Io, because Io is very close. We go only twice to Europa, because also Europa is very interesting, but relatively close. And we focus on Ganymede because it's, it's at a reasonable distance from Jupiter. What are the most important instruments on board JUICE to help it do its mission? Well, we have 10 instruments, and they have been selected at the same time, of course, and each of them to achieve specific objectives of the mission. And they have been selected such that they can work also together to address all the big questions of JUICE. So there is no one instrument particularly more important than the other. They are all very important because they have selected all together to fit the science objective of the JUICE mission. We have three big packages. So we have the remote sensing instruments, or so the eyes of JUICE, so the all the cameras, spectrometers. So we have four of them because we want to take images and to study the geology of, of the moons and the atmosphere of Jupiter. And then we have spectrometers covering radio, near infrared, visible, and UV for the atmospheres and for the surface. So that's how JUICE will see everything around the spacecraft. Then we have a package which is called geophysics. That's a very interesting one because that's the first time we fly this kind of instrument to the moons of Jupiter. Here we have a radar to study the first 10 kilometers of the crust. So to penetrate the ice, so we will see the first 10 kilometers, how is the structure. So that's the first time we will do that. And we have also a laser altimeter, which is very, very interesting because we will measure the topography of the moon. So we send laser shots. And then from that, we can see the, the topography. So if you have uh, small hills, uh, craters and so on. But what is very interesting is we will come back to this, the same point many, many times and we will see the tides of the moon. So how the, the height of the moon uh, change with time. And that is a way to, to study the, the interior and the, the liquid water. We have a radio science experiment to study the gravity field. And then we have what we, we can call the, uh, the nose of the, of the spacecraft. is an in-situ measurement of uh, particles, electric field, magnetic field, radio wave, to study in-situ what is, what is around the spacecraft in terms of yeah, particles and in particular for the, for the magnetosphere. And that's a world to detect subsurface oceans. Each of them are very useful and they will be all providing a, a small piece of the puzzle.
0: I'm really excited to see what it can tell us about whether or not there actually are in fact subsurface oceans on these bodies. And the way that particularly Ganymede interacts with the magnetic field of Jupiter is so wacky that I cannot wait to learn more about this. And as I was learning more about these instruments, I learned too that there's an experiment which is called the Planetary Radio Interferometry and Doppler Experiment, or PRIDE. And, you know, as a, the host of Planetary Radio, that made me very happy. Yeah,
1: this one I didn't mention because it's not an instrument, it's, it's an investigation. So there is no hardware on the spacecraft. They will use this, the communication system of the spacecraft, so how we, we transmit data to the Earth. They will listen to big radio telescopes everywhere around the Earth. And then they will do a special measurement to, to detect the speed of the spacecraft, and more importantly, the position of the spacecraft in the plane of the sky. And then we will get very interesting information, for example, on the positioning of the moons in the Jupiter system, so their orbits. And that's uh, an interesting topic for, for JUICE as well.
0: Yeah, it'd be very useful to be able to verify the positions and movements of these spacecraft from afar from Earth. Jupiter has, what, 92 moons, I think, at this point. But these ones have the potential for subsurface oceans, and therefore the potential for being habitable. Juice isn't going to be directly detecting life, but what can it teach us about the potential for habitability on
1: these moons? Well, first is to, uh, it's to really confirm that there are liquid water. We are pretty sure there is liquid water at Europa, relatively sure that there is liquid water on Ganymede. Callisto, there is a question mark, so Callisto is also quite interesting. And the first thing to disc- when you want, you want to discuss habitability is to really understand the properties of liquid water, so because we don't know where it is. So at which depth? Well, we have some some ideas, of course, some indication, but for example, the subsurface ocean at Ganymede could be at 100 kilometers underneath the surface, but it can be 110, 20, 120, 150. So we need to know. It's important. We don't know exactly the, the depth of those oceans. So is it 100 kilometers, 50, 80? We need to know because we, we want to know the amount of water that you have there. And also the composition, we know they are salty because we detect them with the magnetometer, so we know they are salty. That's an interesting piece of physics and, and detection, by the way. But we don't know how much salt do they have there, and the composition is quite important to characterize liquid water. Is it an interesting water for life, etc.? We'll also be studying the radiation environment because it's good to know the radiation environment. I mean, on Earth, we are happy to have the magnetic field, then we have less radiation for coming from the Sun. So. What is the case at Europa with the, when there is no internal magnetic field and Europa is close to Jupiter? What is the case at Ganymede, which is a bit further away, I mean much further away, with an internal magnetic field? That's the only moon to generate its own magnetic field, so very, very special. So what is the role of this magnetic field? Does that help to protect? Not at all. How this interaction between the magnetic field of Ganymede and the magnetic field of Jupiter? And what is the case at Callisto? the Moon, which is the much further away for in, for, with the Galilean moons. So in principle, it's better for the radiation environment at Callisto. But at the same time, the Moon is far from Jupiter, so the tidal activity is very weak. The Moon ap- has probably not evolved since its formation. When you look at the surface of Callisto, it's plenty of craters. So that means the Moon, the surface is very young. Probably there is not much geological activity. So is there a liquid water underneath the surface or not? That's that's an interesting question. And the finding either yes or no will be interesting. And then we can compare the three moons. So Europa, which is active with a possible geysers, very interesting ocean, but close to Jupiter. Then you have on the other hand you have Callisto, which is dead. We don't know if there is an ocean. In principle, it's not very interesting for habitability and life, but who knows? And then you have Ganymede in between. So a big question mark. So there will be a very interesting to know more about the three moons. And then to compare them and to understand better the question of habitability and whether around Jupiter, there is interesting place to, to study life. And then to study life, we need another mission.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, thankfully, you know, we have NASA's Europa Clipper mission coming up for Europa, but you make a great point, which is that Europa doesn't have a global magnetic field and that might be necessary. I mean, depending on the thickness of the ice, that's really fascinating. I'm really excited, too, about the potential that we might be getting pictures of geysers on these worlds. We do have evidence that that might be happening on Europa, but who knows about Ganymede? Those images might be
1: mind-blowing. Exactly. Exactly. We will see. Even at Europa, the situation is not very clear for the geysers. So we'll see a little bit with juice, mainly with Europa Clipper. We are very happy that there will be two spacecraft in the Jupiter system at the same time. By the way, we already started to, to collaborate with the two science teams, so that's great. Then, uh, yes, maybe some, there will be some activity uh, that we detect at Ganymede. We will see. Yeah, no, it's very, very exciting.
0: JUICE is arriving in 2031, right? Am I remembering correctly that Europa Clipper is arriving in, like, 2030?
1: Yeah, yeah. There are yeah. a few months uh, before us if if they launch uh, next year. So that means there will be an overlap of uh, maybe two, three, four years between the two missions. So that's uh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely great.
0: Thanks, Olivier. Thank you, Sarah. This is a moment in space history that deserves to be marked. We're embarking on a new era of icy moon discovery with the launch of JUICE and the upcoming Europa Clipper mission. Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto have captured the imaginations of scientists and science fiction writers for ages, and there's no wonder why. These worlds represent untapped reservoirs of knowledge that could reshape our understanding of habitability in the cosmos. It's hard to say how rare worlds like Earth truly are with their liquid water oceans and abundant life, but icy moons are everywhere. These are the beginnings of a deeper understanding of our place in space. And who knows how many icy worlds have creatures thriving in their oceans under a vault of ice? Only time and science will tell. You can hear the extended version of my interview with Olivier Vitas, project scientist for the European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer mission, in the podcast and online version of this show. We also share a bonus segment recapping our Planetary Society Digital Day of Action. You can find it at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for what's up after this short break.
1: Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for planetary society members here you can connect with fellow members from around the world join live events you won't get anywhere else and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them it's all about putting the society in the planetary society i'll see you on the digital frontier
0: hi this is kate from the planetary society how does space spark your creativity we want to hear from you whether you make cosmic art take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family. Really, any creative activity that's space-related. We invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at That's connect at Thanks! Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Now let's check in with Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, for What's Up. Hey, Bruce. Hi, Sarah. Now, what a week. I mean, day of action was cool. Starship exploded, you know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how to follow that other than telling people what's up in the night sky. Oh, (laughs) don't forget hybrid solar eclipse and a lyrid meteor shower all were a party. It's true. But we've got more. We've got uh, Venus, our buddy, is just hanging out. Always is. I just keep saying it because it keeps being there over in the West after sunset Uh, Mars moving over, moving gradually towards Venus uh, up higher in the sky, looking reddish, a lot dimmer. And then in the pre dawn, Saturn's getting higher and higher in the east. The night of the 5th through the 6th, an above average meteor shower, the Eta Aquarids, will be partying. Here's good news, bad news. If you're in the northern hemisphere, hey, you get to see most things, but this one's going to be tougher. Southern Hemisphere, this isn't a better position for you to see it. Unfortunately, there's going to be a nearly full moon, and so it'll be uh, tougher to see. But that's the evening of the 5th, 6th, a few days before or after. Pretty good meteor shower, especially Southern Hemisphere, so go out and check that out. We move on to this week in space history. The uh, first image of Earth from the surface of the moon by a human-built robotic spacecraft was taken by Surveyor 3 on April 30th, 1967, and uh, it's not very spectacular, but compared to like now, but it's pretty substantial when it's the first time you do that. It was a few months earlier, they got the first images from orbit as well. All right, we move on to (laughs) random space fact.
0: (laughs) What do you got this week,
2: Bruce? (laughs) I've got something that requires a brain, sorry, which is the speed of sound, commonly called Mach 1. The speed of sound at the Mars surface is about a little over 70% of Mach 1 at the surface of the Earth. So on the surface of the Earth, it's 340 meters per second or about 781 miles per hour. 340 meters per second goes down to 244 meters per second and uh, 546 miles per hour. So you've got, because it's dependent on things like what the atmosphere is made of and temperature, and of course, both those numbers vary depending on your altitude and depending on the temperature, but ballpark, bottom line is you hit supersonic at a lower speed, which is something when people think about, which people occasionally do, and I was involved in at some point. Uh, Mars airplanes, it's a whole different world because you you go supersonic at a slower speed, which requires different design.
0: I hadn't even considered what that would mean for airplanes someday. Like I thought about it in the context of what that means for Martian microphones.
2: I mean, that also is why sound, uh, it's related to the differences in sound and frequency shifts and things like that. Yeah, that's really cool. All right. Let us move on to the trivia question because usually we ask you one. And in this case, uh, I ask: what was painted on the front of Yuri Gagarin's flight helmet and why?
0: How do we do, Sarah? When you pose this question, I knew part of the answer, but it got weirder and weirder the more I read about it. Yeah. And every answer that people sent in gave even more pieces to this puzzle, so <laughs> it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the too-long, don't-read version of this is that the Soviet Union wanted Yuri to be clearly labeled as a member of their nation when he was doing this. but. The real tea here is that about a year before Yuri Gagarin went on this wild flight into space for the first time, there was a US U-2 pilot named Gary Powers that the Soviet Union shot out of the sky while he was doing surveillance. So everyone was like, on high guard in the situation, and they were worried that if Yuri went off target and landed back in the Soviet Union or even in another nation, he might be seen as an invader or a spy or something. So an engineer, about half an hour before he went up on his historic flight. Yeah, that's
2: where it gets funny. (laughs) Yeah,
0: half an hour before. This is crazy. This guy spray painted CCCP, which is, uh, of course, the, the Soviet Union's version of USSR, on his helmet just in case he landed back in the USSR. They wouldn't think that he was uh, invading them from space.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's why I asked, because I thought the story was fascinating. I knew he had that on his helmet. I didn't realize it had been such a last minute addition or why.
0: Right. Half an hour before. um,
2: So uh, who who talked to us? Who won?
0: Oh, yeah. You know, it was hard to, to pick on this one because so many people had like partial answers, that kind of thing. But in the end, our winner is Miranda Weaver from New Hampshire, USA. And Miranda, you're going to be getting a cool prize. It's our Yuri's Night gift set. So lots of stickers and patches and cool little, cool. like, uh, you know, fake tattoos of Yuri's face. Although I don't think that any of these images actually have the CCCP written on the helmet in them. I think they kind of, you know, internationalized his image. Lost over them? Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, you read like his speech before he flew and it was not internationalized at the time.
0: Oh, Spicy. <laughs> I'm going to have to do that because this story was really cool to learn about. But all right, Bruce, what, what's our next trivia question? you going to stump them this time? No,
2: but I am going to deliver something in a format that has never before been used with the trivia question. This is a put things in order question. I'm going to give you five things. You're going to put them in chronological order. Following five things are all still going or still working. Put them in chronological order from oldest to youngest. If it's a spacecraft, start with their launch date. And for others, the first public release, all right, get your notepads out. Here are your five things. The Mars Curiosity Rover, Planetary Radio, Minecraft, Mars Odyssey, and iPhones. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest and uh, give us the five in chronological order from oldest to youngest.
0: And you've got a week to answer this one. You have to turn in your answer by May 3rd at 8 a.m. Pacific time, and the winner will get a Planetary Society beanie. I love these kinds of questions. Whenever someone puts all these things in context in their order, especially when they're disconnected, right, a historical event plus like a TV show or something, it always blows Mm -hmm. my mind because there's so many things that happen in such close proximity that are so distant in my brain. So it's always awesome.
2: Distant in your brain. Hmm. How far distant can things get in your brain?
0: I mean, there's a an empirical answer to this, but uh, <laughs> it wouldn't reflect how far apart they actually feel in my mind. Oh, I
2: see. It was a fig- figurative thing. Okay.
0: Yeah, about, right. about like two centimeters, maybe.
2: <laughs> All right. I think this needs to end. All right, everybody. Go out there look up in the night sky and think about a wet dog nose on the back of your arm because that's what I have right now. Thank you and good night.
0: We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with Matt Kaplan's adventures at the Planetary Defense Conference. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our curious members. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week... Add Astra.